This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to episode seven of season two. All right, this is the Human Things Podcast. I think I left that out of the intro. The Human Things Podcast, episode seven, season two, season two, episode seven, however it works for you. That's where we are. Uh, today, I'm very excited about today's show because it is the first analogy show. I've been talking about this for several episodes. We're going to have a, just a discussion of abortion analogy, analogies that are used in the abortion argument. One of the, one of the, uh, we've, we've discussed in past episodes, abortion is not always the most cheerful subject to have to focus on as much as we do focus on it. And and though it is not exclusively what we focus on at Merely Human Ministries, it is what we focus on the most at Merely Human Ministries because the moral cost for being wrong on abortion is so high, meaning that if the unborn are fully human, then it is the unjust destruction of innocent human life on an unimaginable scale. So there's an urgency to this issue that isn't necessarily there for every issue that we discuss. So I do have interest in and all sorts of issues pertaining to human life. By the way, as an aside, because I have been talking more and more, I have found with people about AI, people talking to me about the Ben Mitchell episode where we discussed artificial intelligence and the interview with him, which is a wonderful uh, man coming on to talk to us, incredibly helpful. But that has been a huge issue that people want to talk about, obviously because it's in the news cycle, but also because in the same way that what we've talked about already, when I said the moral cost of being wrong is so high, they realize that when people are talking about an extinction level event, that this may be necessary to talk about more seriously than we're giving it credit for being. Also, I want to encourage you, welcome to a Barbie free zone. We will not be discussing Barbie at all. Uh, that is as much as you're going to hear about it. So you are safe from having to break down Barbie, either way, good or bad, genius or evil will not happen here. We are completely and totally indifferent to the whole Barbie phenomenon. So let's get on with it. First of all, and, and I'm, I'm jokingly informed our audience over the course of several episodes about animal uprisings. And, and I've talked about the elephants that are stealing sugar cane. I've talked about the orcas and the Straits of Gibraltar that are dismantling the rudders on sailboats. I've talked about an otter who is stealing surfboards. And in the episode I talked about otters, I, I, I mentioned that otters are predators and that they will take down what they can take down and that you do, they look cute, but it always, we have to watch out for how the, the Disney, Disney-fying, whatever you, however you want to say it, how Disney has taught us to see animals as these thoughtful creatures who are planning out their college years or whatever it is that Disney imagines that they are. And they're not. I mean, the, the animal kingdom is is a brutal place. And that otters, although they are cute, are prone to be prone. So in a less joking matter, there has been an, an additional attack from otters this is in Montana, I believe. It was three women that were um, tubing down a river and were attacked by otters. This is a serious attack. And one of them had to be airlifted to help. So just to reiterate, I jokingly talk about those animal kingdoms, but it's not lost on me that we are talking about very dangerous things. My wife and I used to go hiking all the time. Uh, every, at least once a year, we would go out west to go hiking before we had kids. Uh, and one of the things that would come up was the people who were, I remember we were hiking one day and I had pack bells on 
and trying to make a lot of noise as we hiked through Grand Teton National Park. And because the grizzly bears and black bears, mostly at that point, you still had a mix. Once you get to Yellowstone, it's mostly grizzlies because uh, just grizzlies don't like black bears or they eat them or whatever. So um, that we're the most, both kind of bears there. And, and as we're walking down the path, this woman tells me to hush, like, shh. I said, why would I, what's the pattern? She said, your bells are too loud. And it's, they're supposed to be loud. And she told me, but there's a big bear over there and we don't want to scare him off. And I reached back and started ringing my bells even louder. And I was like, ma'am, yes, you do. You want that bear to know that you are there. You want to scare him off because this isn't a nature show because that bear can cover a hundred yards in about three seconds. And if he decides to charge you, there is nothing that you can do to get away from him. Uh, so the animal kingdom is dangerous. I want to recognize that I joke about these things, uh, but that, that this new otter attack is a serious thing and that we ought to be very careful about how we play in animal areas where we know that animals are. Uh, so that, that was a more serious note to something we talked about more jokingly. Um, here's something stupid just because, Hey, I reserve the right to talk about stupid things. I was sitting around the other day and when you when your kids get older, JD just came in interesting. Look, when your kids get older and when you have two in college and one of them who is uh, very expensive because of her choice of sports and the school that she goes to, to help her facilitate those sports, I start to rethink fictional characters. And I was sitting around the other day thinking about how often in the Harry Potter series, and if this is just not your thing, go ahead and ignore it or, or believe me to be heathen. I'm not really worried about it. But in the Harry Potter, Potter series, how they, they make fun of the Weasleys for being poor. And then I thought about the Weasleys for a minute. And I'm like, okay, well, you had what? Like one, two, three, four, five, six boys and a girl. Is that right? If I'm, I think I'm counting that right. Uh, you have the twins and Ron and first, yeah, so six, six boys and a girl. So you have seven kids. And, and then on top of all of that, obviously feeding them and taking care of them and all of the things that you have to do. Living in a house, by the way, lovely house, weird, but lovely. And, and so they're not poor maybe as much as they're just kid poor, right? They're child poor. Their children are sucking all the resources from their life. And then I thought, and what does Hogwarts cost? Because I don't even know. They never talk about it really. And so because JK Rowling is just that kind of a person, I knew if I Google that JK Rowling would have talked about this. And here was the interesting thing that I found out. You can go to websites and find out people who have sat down and tried to break down the average annual cost of going to Hogwarts, which I think is fascinating. But Hogwarts itself is underwritten by the Ministry of Magic. Okay, this is going to be a short little tirade. I'm going to be off of this in just a second here, but here's what bothered me because now all of a sudden I'm rethinking everything that I know about that book because because I immediately go back to a scene in the movie, which I can't remember if it's in the books, but the scene in the movie where I remember Hermione Granger complaining because Dolores Umbridge uh, in the fifth book, the fifth movie is now at Hogwarts. She says the Ministry of Magic is interfering at Hogwarts. And, and come to find out the Ministry of Magic is underwriting the education of every student at Hogwarts. That's not interference. That's just stewardship, man. If that's the case, 
then Hogwarts belongs to the Ministry of Magic, basically. And Dumbledore works for them. And all of the complaining throughout the entire series of books about how the Ministry of Magic is butting in and interfering. You ungrateful jerks, they're paying for you to be there. This is not to defend what they are in the book, but I'm just saying it, it recast everything for me to find out, both that nobody's paying for Hogwarts. So then they do, when you go to these things breaking down, they're trying to figure out the cost of the robes, the cost of the books, the cost of the wands, the cost of the, uh, everything, everything that they have to have to go to, everything else they have to pay for. But actually the, the boarding at Hogwarts and the education and the teachers and all of that, that's all paid for by the Ministry of Magic. And then, then what we get is seven books of people griping about the Ministry of Magic interfering when they're paying for the whole thing. I just found that slightly irritating. Okay, so next, it's gonna sound silly when I start it, but I found this fascinating. And it was a tweet that I saw where somebody said, this question has basically cost broken up many friendships. The question was, can a vampire police officer who holds a lawful warrant enter into an abode without being invited? So a little background, if you're not into this sort of thing and you don't understand that traditionally speaking, now vampires are an interesting, there's a whole book, an academic book that was a PhD thesis about how we interpret vampires differently from generation to generation. And they're, they're in, in many ways, all monsters traditionally, as we've seen them throughout history. And there's multiple books on this as well. All of them in some sort or another, like a PhD thesis level when you talk about them. And they're evaluating the kind of monsters that each generation and each culture tend to create and tend to become most fascinated with. And, and they're trying to attach them to fears within the culture. I may have mentioned before in this show that the zombie shows and fascination with zombies and the undead or hordes of the undead they, people tend to believe that it goes hand in hand when a culture is anxious uh, about the dissolution of culture, that the culture is going to fall apart and we're all going to be left with this lawless madness. And so we see and deal with our fears about that uh, in a healthier way by doing it through zombie movies. I don't know if that's true, but that's just one of the things that I've read. So in that light, vampires are reimagined or re-understood throughout all of history. It went originally when you had Bram Stoker's Dracula, he was cursed and there's demonic possession and, and, and evil that, that it was cast as something evil. And then as you go through, you see it manifest itself into something more romantic and, and you see it manifest itself into things uh, where he's beautiful or misunderstood or vampires that are a race and all of these different things. But one of the traditionally understood ideas about vampires before was that in order for them to enter your home, they had to be invited. I don't know. I've never seen the remake of the movie Fright Night, uh, but I remember seeing that in the movie Fright Night when I was younger and it came out that he had to be invited to come into the home. It also was in Lost Boys where there's a, there's a scene, if you've ever seen Lost Boys, if you're older like me and you've seen the Lost Boys, there's a scene at the beginning where, where a guy asked to be invited in uh, and that becomes a big part of the movie later. So, because once you invite a vampire into your home, you are powerless against him. And so here is the question. Can a vampire police officer 
holding a lawful warrant to enter into an abode, enter into that house without permission. And I don't understand why this broke up friends, because this, I think this is, I personally think this is fairly philosophically clear that the answer is no. And here's why. And, and why I wanted to talk about this is because I do think it's a very interesting example of two different things. Okay. The, the vampire's position as a police officer is vocational. And the rights to enter that he is afforded by as a result of his vocation through the lawfully issued warrant allow him to legally enter a premise. And those are legal rights. What we're talking about there are rights that you have by virtue of the government granting those rights. So he has the right to enter as a police officer pursuing his vocation, the legal right to enter. But he is within the context of this ridiculous question, also a vampire and assuming he is held under the traditionally held view, he exists under the traditionally held view that he needs an invitation to be able to enter an abode because you have to grant that evil, the right to come into your home, which is an interesting question or an interesting thing to think about in and of itself that that in order for evil to exist and to have power in your home, it has to be invited in. It doesn't get to intrude itself upon your home. So here we have a vampire standing at the door with a warrant wanting to come in and his vocation and the legal right he's been granted through that vocation would allow him legal entry to your home in pursuant of the warrant and whatever it is the warrant is allowing them to look for in there. In the, but the vampire, by nature of what it is, can't enter without permission of the person living in the home because that is a different thing altogether. There's not, and this goes to, in a different way, that the idea of like natural rights, duties and obligations, responsibilities that we have to one another, pre-legal, pre-constitutional, by virtue of what we are. I should not require the government of the United States to tell me that I'm not allowed to kill you. You should not require the government of the United States to tell you that you're not allowed to kill me. We're both the kind of thing as human beings when entering into a relationship that have particular duties. And in this case, we've talked about this a lot, negative duties. I am to withhold certain actions, lethal actions from other human beings and that's not a law that came into existence because the government made it up. It is a natural law. It is by our nature that we have these duties and obligations to each other because life is a good. It is the maybe the ultimate good in the sense as far as we had, what we enjoy is natural rights because all other rights will be enjoyed through life, through the good of life. So when we understand the difference between a legal right to enter and the natural rights and duties and obligations that we have, and then we extend that into this ridiculous question, then I think it becomes fairly clear that although the vampire has a legal right by virtue of his vocation to enter into the home, the vampire 
as the thing that exists who holds the job as police officer cannot enter into the home without the invitation of the home owner. Whatever the magic is, the power is between these two people in this relationship, it exists outside of the law. It is pre-legal, pre-constitutional. Whatever else they are, a criminal and a police officer, they are also still a vampire and a homeowner. And because one gives you the right to enter, it doesn't move over or doesn't extend into the other. The police officer can enter, but the vampire cannot. There you go. I just thought that was an interesting way of understanding the difference between legal rights and pre-constitutional natural rights, rights that we have by virtue of what we are or restrictions, accountability, and duty that we have by virtue of what we are. So without, without further ado, let's get to the analogy section of the show today, because that's really what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to discuss. So, so on this show already on previous episodes, we have discussed to some degree, the, the violinist Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist. We have to some degree or another discussed the burning research lab. And that doesn't mean we won't revisit them. We probably will revisit those uh, in coming shows again to get to deeper details of them. But there are so many analogies and so many ways that people talk about abortion using an analogies uh, and metaphors that I wanted to bring up a few of those today. So there's a, there's about th- I think three that are just that I've hear frequently or that I've read recently again and studying that I think are fun or interesting to talk about. Hopefully in talking about them, we'll clarify why the analogies exist and I will do justice to the people who are arguing these analogies as to why they're using them and the point that they're trying to make with them. Uh, and then we're going to talk, we're going to dive into Judith Jarvis Thompson, not the violinist, but the other analogies from her academic article, a defensive abortion, because that's where the violinist argument comes from. But I've said many times, there are a lot of interesting analogies in there. And I do think she would not have given those analogies if she didn't think it was more, it helped make her point more clearly. And so never really visiting them, only visiting the violinist, we don't get to the depth of what she was trying to say. And so I think by looking at those other analogies, maybe we'll get a little bit more clarity on Judith Jarvis Thompson's position. And at the same time, hopefully we can see that it still doesn't do the work that she needs it to do. So the first, and I'm going to just going to, when Lisa does this, I'm giving her now verbal permission to add sound effects. Whatever we want to do as we break these up one, two, as we work our way through the analogies, analogies, uh, you have the freedom to be creative here at this moment, Lisa, uh, color this up as you may with sound and audio and video. Okay, the first analogy is an easy one for me. But remember, I hear about this a lot. You hear it on time on, online a lot. Uh, one of the, by the way, as we launch into this, let me say that the mic drop culture has done more to make people stupid, I think, in the last 10 years than anything else that I remember. If only because we've been we've embraced this idea that we can make statements that are so perfectly stated that we have no 
responsibility to defend them. So we say them and we walk away. And I see this a lot. This is, this, I guess this is all like TikTok and reels and, and you see this on YouTube and I see videos of people giving speeches or showing up during Q and a where they say something really dramatically. They think it's rhetorically beautiful. They've made their point. It's inarguable. They walk away and their, their fans and minions are screaming and clapping and approval. This is not how we get to the bottom of important moral issues. So when I'm online and I see somebody use something like the acorn analogy, I, that's the worst use of it. But I'll, I'll go back actually to a better point. I was in San Francisco at this point. I believe that's right. San Francisco. And I was talking to a group and then I was in the library. So I did a big talk and then I went to the library afterwards and we did Q and A's. So they brought every everybody in the school eventually comes to the library and has a period with me where they get Q and a, and one young man, thoughtful young man identified himself uh, as a gay atheist, gay pro-choice atheist. He said, Mr. Watts, an acorn is not an oak tree. An acorn is not a tree. So destroying an acorn is not the same as destroying a tree in the same way. An embryo or a fetus is not a human being. It's not a person. So destroying them is not the same as destroying. Just like destroying an acorn is not the same as destroying a tree, destroying an embryo or fetus is not the same as destroying a human being, an adult, a child, whatever, a person. Now, obviously, there's a lot to sort through there in the, in the way that the young man asked me uh, and so or presented his view but here is my response to it. And it is the standard response. Uh, I think any reasonable person will point this out. I told him it's true. An acorn is not a tree. Absolutely true. But an acorn is an oak. So it's not a tree, but it is an oak. In the same way, a fetus or an embryo is not an adult. It's not a toddler. It's not a child. In that sense that we would say, like a, an adolescent. But it is a human. So an acorn is, a, is an oak in the very beginning of its development. And an acorn is, is not a seedling. It's not a sapling. It's not a tree, but it is an oak. And it's an oak in the early stages, most earliest stages of its development. So a human being has stages of development as well. A zygote, embryo, fetus, infant, toddler. As we move through these stages, we have different stages of development in the human developmental chain, right? We're going through all of these. Every oak is going to start as an acorn. Then it's going to go through different, again, seedling, sapling, all of these different things. Every human being is going to be a zygote, an embryo, a fetus, a newborn. It's going to go through all of these stages, every single one of them. So when you say an oak, an, a, an acorn is not a tree, you're not saying anything any more impressive than saying a newborn isn't an adult or an elderly person. It's just not particularly interesting information at all. But if you're confused, but you're, if you're if you're confusing a developmental stage for the kind of thing that it is, then the problem is not that I don't understand that an acorn's not a tree and a fetus isn't an adult. The problem is you don't understand that the acorn, the seedling, and the sapling are all oaks, 
and the tree and the embryo fetus, newborn, infant, all of that, they're all human beings at different stages of development. So this analogy of saying, since we, and, and by the way, there's, it goes further than that in the sense also that the value of a tree is largely extrinsic. Now, there are, I'm sure there are people out there that believe that trees have spirits. I know there are. And there are people that believe that trees are sacred. I know that there are. But for most people, the reason that it would be wrong to cut down a fully grown tree is because we value the tree. Because we understand it took a long time for it to grow. And to get to the size that it is right now and the beauty that it holds versus if we see a sapling just coming up out of the ground, really small, you pull that up. You don't feel like you've done some horrible thing, but you look at that other tree and you feel like it's old, it's matured, it's beautiful. It is lush with green leaves in the summer. The beauty of it is just something that I enjoy. And so it would be wrong to cut down something so beautiful, but that's extrinsic value. The value is given to it from us. It's not intrinsically valuable the same way a human being is. So when you would say, well, it's not a big deal that we crush acorns or that the um, squirrels go around and plant them and eat them in the winter, that these aren't, these aren't violations, but that's because the acorn has no intrinsic value to match the intrinsic value of a human being. So destroying it in its earlier stages of development versus its later stage of development, it's a, it's a matter of preference at that point because we've given extrinsic value to the tree. We love the tree, value it, value its age and its beauty. But that value doesn't come from itself. It's not intrinsic. We don't murder trees. We may be bad stewards if we cut down too many. Now, sometimes it's necessary to cut down some trees so that others may flourish, just like uh, aspens and out West, you have to, they have to burn. Aspens have to fire is just a part of what keeps an aspen grove healthy. So every once in a while they have to burn. There has to be fire to keep those aspens growing the way that they grow. It's just a healthy part of the life cycle uh, of, of the, the forest there. And so we understand that sometimes the destruction of the tree is necessary for the flourishing of others, but we don't look at human beings that way, or at least not, I don't think morally healthy people do. Uh, I know other people do. So the acorn analogy, acorn is not a tree, true, but an acorn is an oak. And in the same way, an embryo or a fetus is not an adult or an infant or a toddler or an adolescent, but a fetus or a, an embryo are human beings at an early stage of development. And the, 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 the kind of analogy we're making here isn't helpful at all, except for to help clarify for people uh, that they that life ex progresses through developmental stages uh, and that acorns are oaks and embryos and fetuses are humans and that they have that in common. All right, so that, that was, and, and I will say, by the way, that that young man that I was talking to, and I've talked to a lot of people about this particular one over the years, but he stands out. For a lot of reasons, one of the things was because after we had a very thoughtful discussion back and forth about this particular objection, uh, he did tell me that was when he it was after we had the discussion that he said, I am a pro-choice gay atheist. And he said, and I came here expecting to hate you. And I'm surprised that I don't. And I've enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate your 
uh, serious discussion of the questions that I had. And that was the central one right there. That what we just talked about there was central to that conversation. And so he sticks out in my mind, not just because he brought up that issue, but because he was just a lovely human being to talk to. And I enjoyed my time with him. Uh, so let's get into analogy number two. And things are about to get a little weirder. I wanted to start off with an easy one, but we're going to get a little stranger now. So number two, the rational cats from philosopher Michael Tooley. So in his discussion, we discover a procedure, oftentimes understood as a serum, that we're able to give to cats. And it transforms, their, transforms them from their normal capacities into having to being rational beings like human beings. The same kind of rational capacities, the same moral capacities. They are in all rational ways like human beings capable of living that kind of life, that kind of thought life, that kind of psychological life, that kind of emotional and moral experience. We give them the serum and suddenly cats become rational. So he says, because cats now have the ability to become rational beings, does that mean that it is wrong to kill all cats in the same way it is to kill early human life? If you're the kind of person that says, it's the rational nature of human beings that makes them valuable. And that we have the capacity to rationality, even when we don't practice it. So he says, okay, cats don't practice rational thought, but if we had a serum that made it so they could, they now have the capacity to rational thought the same way a very immature human does. So does that mean that cats, it's wrong now to kill cats in the same way that it's wrong to kill early humans. Now, why is Michael Tooley making this argument? Because Michael Tooley believes being rational, having immediately practicable capacities for rationality, having the ability to be rational right now, having begun your rational psychological existence is what gives you value not the capacity to mature into rationality. So he says, let's do this thought experiment. If cats have the potential to become rational through the use of this serum, then do they have the same rational capacities that immature humans have, thus killing a cat before it has had the serum is the same moral crime as killing an immature human. Tooley, by the way, does not have an in-principle problem with infanticide. So he says, if you accept that, it's not that, that, that he, he said, that's the problem, right? If you're hanging on the capacity, now we have to say the cats are valuable. And he thinks that's, that's a leap that we're not going to take. Now he's aware of this, 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 what I'm about to say. And he does talk about it in his writings. But the first problem that people will want to point out, and this problem will be, we're going to parse it out in three different ways, right? Number one is passive capacities versus active capacities. Meaning once you create the serum that makes it so cats have the capacity through the use of the serum to become rational beings, they now have pre previous prior to using the serum, they have a passive capacity to rationality. Meaning that cat by its nature will not mature 
to be a rational being unless we intercede and we give it this. So as a pat, it is the kind of being that we can act on and give it capacities. This gets to the next distinction that people it's intrinsic, which I mentioned earlier with the trees versus extrinsic, a human child, an immature human life has the active capacity to mature into being rational and and that's an intrinsic capacity by virtue of what it is. It holds it from within itself. It is a part of what it is. Whereas with the cats, the acquisition of that rational nature is extrinsically added to them. The cat pre serum has no ability to grow or to mature into rationality. It is not an active capacity and it is not an intrinsic capacity. And it is not a part of its natural maturation process, which is another, the third way I've heard scholars talk about this. If we look at the natural maturing process of, of different beings for these pre-serum cats, there is no natural maturing process towards rationality. The only way that they will gain the rational capacities that a human being will have is with the interference of human beings in their development process to basically, by the way, as many philosophers have pointed out, it doesn't even make sense to call whatever it is that we create through this process cats anymore because they've become something different. So the question is whether they're rational cats or not. They may look like cats, but their very nature has changed. We've, we've changed them into a different kind of being. Now, of course, I think anybody who has an inclusive view of human value, I hope would agree that if you suddenly had rational agent cats walking around that in every way operated psychologically, emotionally, and morally like human beings, that they ought to be treated with the same dignity and respect because they're a new kind of being. Also, I would hope, by the way, that even if you don't believe that, you don't think it's okay to run around killing cats. And I think that's probably the weirdest part about this analogy to me as I sort through it is, in a lot of these analogies is there seems to be an under, an, 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 an accepted under a current running under them that says, you know, if you don't believe that cats are rational, killing cats isn't a problem. I believe that we can sit around and come up with several reasons why it's not a good idea to run around killing cats and why we would be concerned morally about an individual who does not see that and runs around killing cats. So I don't think it's okay to kill cats anyway. I think that there are reasons that we shouldn't. Uh, and, but beyond that, I don't think this makes cats the same as human beings. I don't think it does the work that Thule wants it to do. Uh, because even though he, he recognizes that difference between passive and active and dismisses it, I don't know how it's so easily dismissed because a cat has no active capacity, no intrinsic capacity, and no pathway through its natural biological maturation process to become a rational being. But that human life does. So when you give that, let's say that you could give that serum to the cat and then at the same process it would go through as a human being does to learn everything. It doesn't become immediately and fully rational. It takes time in the same way it does a human being. So all you've done by injecting that cat is to change its nature into the kind of thing 
that the human being is. And then, yes, I agree that it ought to be treated differently than we would other cats, even though I reject the idea that we should be free to run around killing cats, and I think that's a weird way to think about it. I do accept the idea that if you change the nature of that cat through the application of that serum, then we ought to reevaluate how we understand our relationship to this new being that we have in front of us. If it's this superior cat that we've created, the rational cat. So there, Tully's rational cat which was meant to demonstrate that it's not the capacity for rational thought, but the immediate practicable capacity for rational thought that grounds value. I think it fails to do it on those reasons that we just talked about. So that's, that's number two. Now let's move on to number three. And I picked these, these two in order because they, they do the same sort of argument. This is a step uh, towards a different level. Uh, this is, in a paper that was uh, from Nicole Hassan and Uriah Kriegel, I hope I hope I have done their names justice. I probably have not. Uh, where they talk about Martian oysters. Okay, so analogy number three: Martian oysters. If we found out that oysters, which we commonly eat, I love oysters. I love char-grilled oysters. If suddenly we found out that oysters would become, would mature into rational beings if they were moved to the environment of Mars. You can use any planet, but they use Mars. They say it would not mean that we have an obligation to them or an obligation to get them to Mars. They say it doesn't even indicate to them that people would eat fewer oysters. And they add to this, even if we were to imagine that at some point we were to develop an, um, an elevator that ran from Earth to Mars and that oysters could find themselves on this elevator while they went through this trip and they were growing closer and closer to becoming rational beings by getting maturing into rational beings by getting to Mars, that they should be free to kill them anywhere along that trip prior to their developing the rational capacities that are natural to them. Now, this is different than the rational cats argument because the rational cats and the rational cats arguments we talked about, the cats are not, they have no active capacity towards maturation. They have no intrinsic capacity towards maturation It is not normal for them to mature into rational cats. All of that is extrinsically active and they're in or act added and their capacities are all passive in that sense. In this particular case, these oysters do have active capacity to mature into rational beings. It's not the oyster's fault that they're not maturing. It's the environment that they're in. And in a healthy environment for the oysters, they would mature into rational beings. So here is, and, and by the way, in the show Futurama, there is uh, an episode, in season two, episode 15, they actually cover something like this. Uh, the show is called The Problem with Poplars. And the... The, the central characters of Futurama, the delivery guys, find themselves on a planet hungry and they find these little things and they're delicious and they start eating them. And then they tell other people about them and they become this incredibly desired food. They're just so delicious. And then one of them uh, lets it age a little bit more than they expected it to. They let it sitting out. And then when they go to eat it, all of a sudden it opens up his eyes and starts calling her mommy. Uh, and so we find out that the poplars are not 
just snacks to be grabbed up off the ground like grapes or something that grows out of the ground, but they are actually the very early life form, a very early development stage of an alien life form that is very warlike and angry to find out that earthlings have eaten like a trillion of their babies. Uh, and so th this is the, the Futurama dealing with the Martian oyster problem. Now here, here is the thing that I find not helpful about the Martian. Number one, I understand what it's trying to do. By the way, both of these, uh, Nicole Hassan and Uriah Kriegel, both also advocate are both advocates for um, infanticide. They think that there are, it's a period of time. As a matter of fact, they, they seem to be more extreme than most of the other people that argue for infanticide in their article, uh, because in their defense, they go so far as to talk about the mirror test, which we've talked about before in this show, when you get to like 18 months in order for you to pass the mirror test. And they use that as the, self-awareness marker, which means that the window that they think you should be allowed to kill early human life is, is a lot larger in principle than what other people agree with. So, but here's the problem with the Martian oysters. First of all, and I think Kate Greasley, who I've talked about a lot, pro-choice philosopher, Oxford university, legal philosopher, uh, moral philosopher, both. And, and she actually addresses this in her book arguments about abortion. And she says, it may be, that the oyster analogy is just so far removed from human experience that it's not helpful. And what she means by that is all analogies are used in order for us to see how we emotionally or psychologically respond. Uh, I think it's, um, oh, I can't remember the philosopher who talks about, I, I'm seeing his face right now, but he talks about, he coined the term intuition pumps. But the idea of intuition pumps, so you give these analogies, analogies or these intuition pumps, and what they're meant to do is to take the scenario that you're in, put it into some place where we might have a clear understanding of our emotional responses to things. And so there's parallels between the two so that when we see, oh, this is how we would emotionally respond to that, and that's clearer to us. So if we reapply it back to the issue at hand, we learn something about our view on the issue at hand. Kate Greasley says, I don't think the oysters help because they're so far removed from human experience. It's difficult for us to understand what we would actually do. Going back to the problem with poplars on Futurama, once they realize that poplars are not a snack food, but are very immature members of an alien race, many human beings begin to feel guilt for what they've done and to advocate for them being treated better. Uh, there is all further issues that break out. I don't want to make this a review of that episode for Futurama, but it does finding out what they are does change how people understand their duties and responsibilities to them within the context of that show. And I'm not sure that that wouldn't be true also for a large portion of humanity. If we found out that oysters were actually an alien species embryonic stage, it may be that we change the way that we deal with them and that we grow a greater respect. Now that doesn't mean that we have a responsibility or duty to get them to Mars, which is the question. One of the questions that they raise, do we now have a responsibility or duty to transport them to Mars? I don't think that that's the same, uh, but it does raise questions. And what she's saying is that with all of this particular analogy, it is so far removed from the human experience that it's difficult for us to read how would respond in that. And since that's the chief aim of analogy is to give us a clear place where we respond and, and bring that clarity back to this issue. 
And Greasley, I think, is probably right. The the Martian oysters is weirder than the abortion issue. So we get no clarity from it. We don't have the slightest idea how we would respond to it. It doesn't give us any ability to evaluate what the normal human response to these things are because I'm not convinced that they're right, that we would just continue on, even though I'm willing to accept that we couldn't shoulder the burden of getting every oyster to Mars. It doesn't hold that some people wouldn't try. And it certainly doesn't hold that the rest of the world would continue to eat oysters if they found out that they were the immature stage of a very rational and let's just say lovely being, maybe smarter, better than us. If we found that out, we might try to duplicate or replicate the environmental conditions that they would live on on Mars to see if we could help them mature here on Earth. There are so many different things. And that's why I think Greasley is right. There's no way that this, this one gives us any clarity on anything. We understand what it's trying to do. What it's trying to say is even with active capacities, even if you have an active intrinsic capacity to mature towards rationality, it doesn't necessarily mean you're the kind of thing that we should respect right now. Just like Thule, they respect immediately practicable capacities for rationality. You need to be rational right now, psychologically aware right now. Capacities, whether intrinsic, active, passive, extrinsic, they just don't give you value. But in this particular one, this is where Kate Greasley, I think, is right to point out, you just went too far. This, we just can't learn anything from the Martian oyster uh, analogy. Okay, so that was three. But I do like the Martian oyster analogy, uh, if for no other reason, because I think it's so interesting when, when a comedy gives us insight into this kind of philosophical issue because the writers of shows like Futurama and the Simpsons are oftentimes really, really smart people and an absurd number of Harvard uh, dropouts go to write for Futurama and the Simpsons or even Harvard grads. Uh, these Ivy league people who just would rather write comedy than, you know, they started national lampoon. I mean, you're talking about a group of people who have a history of wanting to be involved in comedy. And in this particular case, I think Futurama shows both the knowledge of the existence of these philosophical issues and parses it out very well and in a, in a comedic way in the problem with poplars season two, episode 15 of Futurama. By the way, another show that did that very well was the good place. Uh, and, and there are, there's a whole episode of the good place that deals with the trolley problem. And I think it's just a, one of my favorite shows of any episode of any show I've ever seen. Uh, so you do have very well educated people who are writing comedy and, and, and sometimes they connect to in, impressive philosophical arguments uh, that, and draw clarity for us all and, and how they parse them out. Okay. So that was three. Let's get to four. Now four is actually moving us now into the realm of Judith Jarvis Thompson and her article, a defense of abortion, which by the way, I love that article. I love reading that article. I reread it of course, in preparation for this, I reread it at least once a year, maybe twice a year. It just, just it's, it's, it's important to understand where to me, the most interesting, I was going to say difficult, I think it probably is the most difficult, but certainly the most interesting pro-choice argument came from. Because bodily autonomy arguments are born in the way that we argue today in that article. And it is just so well written. I think it's so well. Now, I don't agree with her on what she said, but I do enjoy reading it. And one of the reasons I enjoy reading it is because it is just filled with interesting 
analogies. Now, if you we've talked about the violinist before, and the violinist is central to it. And she talks about the violinist in the terms of the good Samaritan argument. Her point in the violinist, and if you don't remember the violinist argument, we'll go over it very briefly. You wake up one morning uh, and you find yourself in a hospital and you have next to you a stranger that is sewn up to you. The doctor comes in and says, I have terrible news for you. Last night while you were sleeping, you were kidnapped by the Society of Music Lovers. The man sewn to you is a world famous violinist and he has a kidney ailment that will ultimately lead to his death. They needed to find somebody that could donate the use of their kidneys to him for a short period of time. And so they looked through the donor base, found out you were a match, kidnapped you and sewed you to him. Said, look, I'm sorry this happened to you, but in nine months he will be restored back to perfect health through sharing of your kidney. So as much as I'm sorry that happened to you and it's not right that they did this to you, I cannot disconnect you from this violinist because it will kill him. So Judith Jarvis Thompson's point is the violinist is a human just like all the rest of us. But even though he will die, if you unplug yourself from, you have no moral duty or responsibility to keep yourself connected to this violinist for nine months. That's why she calls it the good Samaritan thing. She said, you would be doing a great thing. You would be the good Samaritan. If you left yourself plugged in, you would be heroic, but heroism is not required under normal moral circumstances. It is not. And this is an important part of how she talks about this issue. It is not unjust for you to choose to unplug yourself and let him die. He does not own your organs, nor does he have a rights claim to them. And the question at the center of Judas Jarvis Thompson's bodily autonomy argument is this, or at least the, the argument that she's making, not really the question is that it is possible to kill another human being and for that act to not be unjust. Bodily autonomy arguments grant the full humanity of the unborn. That's the power of them. They say that fetus, that embryo, they're just like us. They are one of us. But it's not always unjust to kill one of us. There are circumstances where killing another human being is not unjust and abortion is one of those circumstances. Now, I think everybody who believes obviously in self-defense and the right to defend yourself or your loved ones accepts the idea that there are some killings of human beings that are not unjust. People who believe in just war theory will accept that there are killings of human beings that are not unjust by their nature. So that is not the problem. The problem is she has to connect the destruction of an innocent human life, the early immature human life, the embryo or fetal human, embryonic or fetal human, as an episode where killing them would not be unjust because of the burdens that they place on the woman. And we've talked about the violinist. I don't want to rehash that all over there, but we have talked about how the moral parallels don't seem to hold there. 
that it is not because in all of these analogies, there has to be parallels so that we can say in the same way, if you accept this intuition that she has no moral duty or responsibility, that it would not be unjust for her or for you or for anyone else to unplug themselves from the violinist, then in the same way you accept that the unborn are fully human, or at least for the point of this argument are fully human. And it's not unjust to unplug ourselves from them and let them die as well. So getting beyond the just looking at the violinist, let's get to the next one of our analogies today. And all of the rest of the analogies that we're going to discuss will come from that paper, that article, A Defense of Abortion from Judith Jarvis Thompson. As we ask that question that she has put to us, is there any way that killing the unborn through the normal practice of abortion is the killing of a human being, but not the unjust killing of another human being. So her first analogy outside of the violinist is the giant growing child. In her own words, suppose you find yourself trapped in a tiny house with a growing child. I mean, a very tiny house and a rapidly growing child. You are already up against the wall of the house. And in a few minutes, you'll be crushed to death. The child, on the other hand, won't be crushed to death. If nothing is done to stop him from growing, he'll be hurt. But in the end, he'll simply burst open the house and walk out as a free man. Now, I could well understand if a bystander were to say, there's nothing we can do for you. We cannot choose between your life and his. We cannot be the ones to decide who is to live. We cannot intervene. But it cannot be concluded that you too can do nothing that you cannot attack it to save your life. However innocent the child may be, you do not have to sit and wait passively while it crushes you to death. Perhaps a pregnant woman is vaguely felt to have the status of the house to which we don't allow the right of self-defense. But if the woman houses the child, houses the child, it should be remembered that she is a person who houses it. Okay, so here what she's trying to make is to, she's saying, first of all, I understand that there's a third party problem with abortion. And that's not always, that's not always fully appreciated. When people talk about a woman's right to an abortion, it's not fully appreciated all the time that oftentimes when surgical abortion was the number one reason, now we've moved on to medical abortions being the number one method in the United States, at least for getting abortions. But when surgical abortions, and that's still going to require a doctor, what they're saying is, I have the right to ask someone else to kill my child. And that's not generally how we sort through self-defense. So she's starting there. She was saying, so even if you address the third party problem, let's start here with this giant growing child. If it's you or the child in this house and the child is just growing and the growth of the child will not kill the child as it burst forth, it will injure, but not kill, but it will kill you then you have the right to defend yourself against the child. Okay. Does this analogy have any moral parallel to normal pregnancy at all? This is a, you will die at any moment as this child grows and grows and consumes you. It is you or the child. That's not the evaluation of normal pregnancy. Pregnancy is rarely 
you are the child. That's not how it works. Most people don't get pregnant and then face the challenge of if you allow that child to continue growing, you will die. It does happen. And we have different ways of dealing with it. And even Judith Jarvis Thompson, even Thompson acknowledges later in her article that all of her arguments have to do with early pregnancy because later in pregnancy we could remove the child. And so the question of the child being intrusive to that mom, and she does say, I I do not believe even giving somebody the right to abortion that they have the right to a dead child. What I'm saying is that a woman's right to control her own body extends even if the unborn child, the unborn life, the fetus or the embryo is fully human and that she has the right to defend herself against this growing thing as it consumes her and threatens to destroy her. But I don't think that this, number one, I don't think that this is a normal view of pregnancy. I think this would be an interesting thought experiment to extend when the life of the mother is at risk in very early pregnancy or maybe later in pregnancy uh, if there were some way for people to get her out of the house in the same way and that may injure the mother a little and injure the child a little, but that they would both live. This is the same thing we're talking about when we talk about emergency C-sections. When my own wife had issues, they told us uh, with our first child, they, then they were talking to us about the process we were able to, we we're getting ready to go through. They said, if, if things go poorly as we we're in there, trust us, we got 90 second window. If it's what the doctor told me, I, I can get that child out in 90 seconds. So we're going to try to do this as a normal C-section, but if we turn into an emergency C-section, if it becomes, it went from urgent to emergency, they said, we can get the child out in 90 seconds. Less controlled, not the way we want to do it, but we can separate these patients quickly. So this analogy then would be something directly related to early pregnancy. The problem is that I don't even know who this analogy in that sense is aimed at. Because I know very few people, very few people, who say, like in a tubal-ectopic pregnancy, if that pregnancy proceeds, the tube will burst, and so we have to remove that child from that tube because if the tube bursts and the woman hemorrhages to death, the child will hemorrhage to death. The embryo will die. Well, I mean, the embryo will die, not hemorrhage to death. If the woman hemorrhages to death, the embryo will die. So the only thing that we can do is save or preserve which life can be preserved. We can't just sit back and do nothing and let two lives die. So we do something to preserve one life. We've talked about this before with intention. The intention is to save lives. It's the principle of double effect. We talked about this a lot with Christopher Tolson as well in that interview. Double effect reasoning says our intentions matter. If our intention is to save lives or to save a life, to preserve what life can be preserved in the question of a genuinely life-threatening pregnancy, we take action to separate the two, even though we know that the child is too underdeveloped, the fetus is underdeveloped, the embryo cannot possibly survive. We remove it because our intention is to save lives. So I don't, this is, I don't know what this particular one is. Her goal in this one is to bring it back to the idea of the woman has the right to defend herself, even if she is the house that's going to be destroyed by their pregnancy. She has the right to defend herself against a child growing out of control. But I think that it just goes too far. Uh, Now she says, I think rather that there are drastic limits to the right of self-defense. 
Thompson writes, if someone threatens you with death, unless you torture someone else to death, I think that you have not the right even to save your life to do so. So she says, look, there, there are limits. If in order to save your life, you are required to torture another human being to death, she said, I don't think that gives you the right to torture that other human being to death. She says, so there are limits. But the case under consideration here is very different. In our case, there are only two people involved, one whose life is threatened and one who threatens it. Both are innocent. The one who is threatened is not threatened because of any fault. The one who threatens does not threaten because of any fault. For this reason, we may feel that we bystanders cannot interfere, but that the person threatened can. So she's saying that because they are threatened with the loss of life, even if we can't make the decision which one should live and which one should die, they have the right to fight it out. It's a very weird analogy. But again, I don't know who this one's aimed at. And and even though I think she does a, I love this article, this is one of the parts that I read and I get very confused because I know she's trying to make the case that even though society at large has trouble picking between the child and the mother, that the mother, the woman, gets the right to make that decision for herself, even if you can't make that decision because it's her life that's threatened. But the level of threat in the rapidly growing giant child in the small tiny house versus the level of threat under a normal pregnancy, they don't parallel at all. And if we extend it to the actual life of the mother argument, then almost every pro-life person would agree with her that under those circumstances, if the mother's life is genuinely threatened and she is going to die, and even Judith Jarvis Thompson says we, we, we go somewhere else when we talk about late term because those can be separated. But in that early pregnancy, if it's genuinely true that she's going to die, she's got a ton of people that are going to agree with her that she has the right to take action to preserve her life. And then, and even then, I think that she's wrong because she says that even though society can't figure out whose side to take, the mother or the child that's growing, or the woman and the child that's growing, I don't think that's true. Most people in society, if they're talking about an early pregnancy and they see a woman who is going to die, most people in society I don't think are going to be paralyzed in this moment. I think most people are going to see whether or not they can articulate it as the principle of double effect and understand why it's okay. Most people are going to understand that it's better to preserve one life than to lose two through inaction. So I don't understand the point of this, but let's move on because there's another interesting one. And this is probably my favorite, not, not because of the, the, the strength of it, uh, but because I think it's the funniest one. So we had the acorn analogy. We had the rational cats analogy, the Martian oysters analogy, the giant child growing analogy. Now let gets, let gets to, let's get to Thompson's Henry Fonda's, cooling hand analogy. Now, why I think this is funny is because first of all, I can't help but wonder if she must have had a crush on Henry Fonda uh, for having chosen him as the guy who's, so she, she says, if I am sick unto death, using Thompson, and the only thing that will save my life is the touch of Henry Fonda's cool hand on my fevered brow, then all the same, I have no right to be given the touch of Henry Fonda's cool hand on my fevered brow. It would be frightfully nice of him to fly in from the West Coast to provide it. 
It would be less nice, though, though no doubt well meant, if my friends flew out to the West Coast and brought Henry Fonda back with them. But I have no right at all against anybody that he should do this for me. So now why is she arguing this? Because what she's trying to clarify here as she works through the idea of the of a of an, a, a not unjust killing of another human being, fully valuable human being, is that we don't have the rights over others to force them to help us. And she sees continuing pregnancy as the woman helping the developing human life. So her point is that there are no rights that extend out, no matter how much help they can provide, nor how easily that help can be provided that requires them to help me. So in her analogy, in this analogy, Henry Fonda with his cool hand that heals her deadly disease is not required to offer his healing hands to her. And she goes so far as to say, by the way, that even if Henry Fonda were in the room with her, he went straight across the room for, and it would be the easiest thing in the world. He could be morally condemned for not crossing the room and doing it. We could see him as a loser, object to him, see him as selfish, the worst kind of human being. But even so, she has no rights claim on Henry Fonda to require him to offer his cooling touch to heal her. That is not something that can happen in her argument. Even though he can help, and even though it wouldn't be an imposition in the second scenario where he's actually in the room with her, he's not required to help. And in the same way, a woman is not required to offer her body to another life, even though it will certainly help them it will allow them to continue to live and it may not even be a great imposition because she says we can't live in a world where rights extend, where I can, I can make claim rights to your behavior. She says, but if this emendation is accepted, the gap in the argument against abortion stares us plainly in the face it is by no means enough to show that the fetus is a person and to remind us that all persons have a right to life. We need to be shown also that the killing the fetus violates its right to life, i.e. that abortion is unjust killing. And then she asked the question, and is it? Is abortion unjust killing? She said it, if it has a normal right to life, it doesn't have a right to life when its right to life requires it making a right claim on another human being that they are required to sacrifice their blood, their organs, their body to allow it to keep living. She said, that's just not the way this goes. If Henry Fonda isn't required to cross the room to help me, then I am not required to help that child. Now she pushes back. She recognizes that the, the rape example is a different example. And she says that a lot of these seem to have more power. A lot of these analogies I'm using have more power in the case of rape. Why? Because in the case of rape, the woman did nothing 
in the sense of she has no responsibility for the existence of this life. Where, in other cases, she says, the argument from those people who see abortion as wrong will say, you did something. This is not the case that you got sick, naturally. This is not the case that that um, you were kidnapped and sewn up to something. This is not the case like Henry Fonda, where you're being asked to interfere in somebody else's life that you don't know, a total stranger to you, and offer up your healing cap- capabilities to them. You did something in having sex that you were fully aware would ultimately lead or could lead to the creation of another life. And because you're responsible for its existence and responsible for the neediness of its existence, because we all know that we come into existence needy by nature, then you're responsible for the care of that life. So in order to make that case, she goes even further. She talks about, okay, imagine that it's hot outside and I open my window. Now, I know when I open my window that somebody could come through it and a burglar comes through. It's not my fault that the burglar's in there and I don't owe anything to that burglar because they decided to come in even though I knew burglars existed and I knew that leaving my window open might make it possible for a burglar to come in. If I wish to dispatch of that burglar and to take measures to protect myself from them, then I am perfectly allowed to do so, even though I knew burglars existed and I kept my window open for burglars to come in. And then she extends that even farther. Further, She says, okay, let's say I put bars on my window because bars on the window would be something like using the pill or a condom to stop yourself from getting pregnant. So she said, even if I do stuff, I take measures to stop burglars, it may be the case that my bars are faulty and they don't work like they're supposed to. They were installed incorrectly. I knew that burglars existed. I took measures to stop the burglar from entering my house and yet they still got in. And she says for the the anti-abortion view, then now I have a responsibility because I knew that burglars existed. And even though I took measures, the measures didn't work. And she goes even further than that. So we've had, Let's count them up at time. We've had the acorn analogy. We have had the cat, rational cat argument. We've had the Martian oysters. We've had the giant child growing. We've had Henry Fonda's cooling hand. We've had the burglar through the open window, the burglar through the faulty bars. And now we get to the last one that we're going to discuss today, people seeds. So in order to continue to try to make this case, that you're not responsible for the life coming into existence, even though you knew sex would produce children under normal circumstances. She says, again, suppose it were like this. People's seeds drift about in the air like pollen. And if you open your window, one may drift in and take root in your carpets or upholstery. You don't want children. So you fix up your window with a fine mesh screen, the very best you can buy. As can happen, however, and on very, very rare occasions does happen, one of the screens is defective and a seed drifts in and takes root. Does the person plant who now develops have a right to the use of your house? Surely not. Despite the fact that you voluntarily opened your windows, you knowingly kept carpets and upholstered furniture, and you knew the screens were sometimes defective. So she's saying... 
there is, she's trying to find an analogy that matches what's going on with normal human reproduction. And I think here we go back to Kate Greasley, who dismisses these. And interestingly enough, Michael Tooley doesn't like these kind of arguments either. You have people on the pro-choice side that say, look, ultimately, I think the arguments that grant the humanity of the unborn, but say that we have justification in killing them, just fail. I think that they don't, they don't rise to the level of being able to, 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 to justify abortion. And so we have to go a different route. All of them say the best route to go is just to d deny the humanity of the unborn altogether. And they craft their arguments in that light. But here Thompson is, is doing yeoman's work, trying to demonstrate that you can know that pregnancy leads to childbirth. You can take every responsibility that you can to try to stop it. You can know that those responsibilities sometimes fail and those effects the, the birth control sometimes fails. And if a child comes into existence, you still don't have responsibility, just like you don't have responsibility for the people's seeds that blow into your house, even though you've set up screens and you've done everything to keep them out and you have upholstery and you have the kind of things that they can grow in, you're not responsible for those people seeds. Now, why I wanted to go through all of this before we start to address it is because I think it's telling the level to which we are separating the procreative act and the concepts of the natural relationship between a mother, biological mother, whether you want to be a mother or not, and her offspring. Because even Judith Jarvis Thompson admits, and our attention might be drawn to the fact that men and women both are compelled by law to provide support for their children. It's like, okay, Let's get back to reality as we start to evaluate these things. Is getting pregnant like seeds blowing around outside and accidentally coming into your house? Is it like a burglar crawling in? Is it like a burglar coming through faulty bars? Is it in any way like any of these things? No. When we were talking to Christopher Tolson, one of the things that came up as we were talking about the practice, the way of medicine and, 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 healthy practice of medicine was the concept of fairness. And in there we talked about it is unfair. The definition of unfair is for you to take an action that has both benefits and costs and for you to enjoy all of the benefits and for you to force another by another being, another human life, another human, another person to bear all of the costs. That's the definition of unfairness that's offered in the way of medicine. Every action that we take has positive and negative outcomes. Fairness would mean that I take the positive and the negative and I deal with both of them in balance. And hopefully the positive is greater than the negative. Unfairness is when I enjoy all of the privileges, all of the benefits, all of the good. And I put all of the, the cost onto another life. Now, I think no matter how she parses it through, that that's what we're getting to in her argument and all of these analogies is that she is trying to find a way where she can grant the full humanity of early human life, but discuss the relationship between that early human life and its biological parents in a way that separates them so that she can get to this place that it is not unjust for the one to kill the other in defense of their life. First of all, what do they mean in defense of their life? 
right? I mean, what does that even mean? Because in what in the normal course, we're not talking about in defense of their life. We're not talking about in defense of their actual life. What we're talking about is the choices that they want to make, the life that they want to live to protect themselves from this intrusion, this interference. But in bringing up our natural duties and responsibilities to other human beings, I think that she brings up an important point. We recognize that we have duties we have that we don't have to others when they're our offspring or our children. Hey, we have duties to other human beings. I, I go back to Henry Fonda's cooling touch. And I understand she, cause she parses for the, she, she makes the distinction between negative rights, meaning that we don't have the right to kill other people. We should refrain from taking lethal action against other people, but we're not required to take positive action on their behalf. And I think with Henry Fonda, I mean, we see something like Henry Fonda's cooling hand actually in practice as we, we understand medical relationships, right? Uh, because if you come down with a condition and we know that there are medical professionals out there that are capable of healing that or capable of doing what's necessary to restore you back to health, then the question comes, are they required? Have you placed a rights demand on them that they are required to serve you in that capacity. And that's something we talked about a lot in the way of medicine. And I think that there's a lot to talk about there, but I don't think that that translates well over into a discussion of mother and child relationship or mother and offspring relationship or mother and embryonic offspring or mother and fetal offspring, however you want to describe it. I don't think that we understand it best as a perfect stranger and whether we have a rights claim on them to minimally walk across the room and to heal us by laying their hand on our head. And I do think, Bob, you could raise the question there if you do uh, have a moral duty or responsibility, but that's probably because I understand moral duties and responsibilities differently than she does. And that's the, the, the point that I want to make in closing about her analogies. Francis Beckwith talks about this in his book, Defending Life, and, and some of the problems that he points out about the way that she proceeds to, to argue these things. He says that she pirates in a view of humanity that we would reject out of hand had we known about it beforehand. Had she declared it before we started the conversation, we would say that's not how I understand human relationships at all. And what he talks about is this idea of moral volunteerism. And, and, and he says that Judas Jarvis Thompson and all the people who defend this view ultimately are saying, I understand our rights and obligations and duties to other human beings the same way that you do. And I agree that the early human life is fully human in the same way that you and I are. I agree that it is one of us, but I'm arguing that there are circumstances under which it is okay to kill them and that that killing would not be the unjust destruction of a human being, even though it would be inarguably the destruction of another human being. But he says in order for that to work, and that's why I wanted to go through her arguments to, to, to make her case that that would not be an unjust killing. She creates a world in which the parent has only those duties and responsibilities to which they volunteer to recognize that the unborn child, our offspring are in every way, a stranger to us to whom we have no greater duty and obligation than Henry Fonda has living on the West coast to travel out here to the East coast and to heal Thompson and her job at MIT. He says that she keeps pirating in this view that we have no duty and responsibility to other human beings without volunteering for that duty and responsibility and specifically extends that moral volunteerism into the 
parent child relationship where he thinks, or he says, I think most people would disagree. Most people would say that we do have natural duties and obligations to our children that we don't have to others. That if Henry Fonda wouldn't cross the room to heal Jane Fonda, he has a moral duty and responsibility to take care of his child. He should fly across the country if he can, if that's what's necessary to give his cooling hand to Jane Fonda, his daughter, because his duties and responsibilities, even though we all know that if, if, if you know anything about their relationship, if you're older like me, you know that there was very famously tension between those two. And that tension, by the way, is acted out in the movie on Golden Pond, which is a wonderful movie. Won many Academy Awards when it came out. A great little independent film where the tension between the real tension between Henry Fonda and his daughter is, is used to act out scenes between the fictional tension between a father and daughter during the course of that movie. And it's wonderful. I love that movie. But Henry Fonda should cross the room to heal Jane Fonda. Because that's his daughter. And the rest of us may or may not have any rights claims on him, but she does. And to fail to meet those duties and responsibilities is a failure to perform your duty as a parent. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, this isn't an attack on adoption. This is one of the things I've had like a conversation with people about because they say, well, and David Boonin in his book, Beyond Rose says, well, we recognize that, that, there is no biological parent responsibility because by recognizing that we can forego those responsibilities and place a child in adoption, we recognize that you don't have those duties and responsibilities by virtue of your biology. And I say nonsense on that particular claim because we recognize the vital nature that a parent plays in the life of their child. And when the biological parent fails to be able to do that, either by choice or by circumstances that it's necessary for people to step in and to serve that vital role in their life. This adoption as it's properly practiced elevates our understanding of what parenting is because it recognizes that it's such a vital thing in the life of another human being that it's better to find people, even if they're not their biological parents who will take that responsibility and duty on and raise them as if they were their very own. And we see a transference of that obligation and duty because if you're an adopted parent, you have the same duty and responsibilities that their biological parent had to them prior to them giving that over to you. I don't see adoptive parents as lesser parents. I see them as a solution to a problem when biological parenting fails. But the duty and responsibility is assumed by somebody who didn't naturally have it, but is heroic enough to take it. To look at another human being and say, they need a parent. And I want to be that parent for them. And I assume everything that it means. That I have a duty and a responsibility and they have claims on me for as long as we both live. I am their father. I am their mother. They are my child. It doesn't undermine the 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 understanding of that, that adoption exists. It actually just demonstrates the importance of it. That when it isn't there in the biological parent, we as a community look for it and other people volunteer and step up for it. And there's a waiting list of people who want to be able to do this for people, for young children who need help. And so here we recognize that there just are different 
responsibilities and duties and accountabilities, and they do have rights claims on us. And moral volunteerism is a view of humanity, as Frank Beckwith points out, and defending life, that had she told us that that was what she believed human relationships were to start, we would never accepted her saying, I grant to you that they are human in the same way that you and I are, and we can agree on that, because we basically and fundamentally disagree about the nature of those relationships. If she believes that a parent only has the moral duties and responsibilities for their children that they volunteer to accept. That's just not how we understand parental relationships. So she says, and in closing for her, she says, I have an effect dealt briefly with this. Surely we do not have any such special responsibility for a person unless we have assumed it explicitly or implicitly. If a set of parents do not try to prevent pregnancy, do not obtain an abortion, but rather take it home with them, take it home with them. Ugh. Then they have assumed responsibility for it. Ugh. They have given it rights and they cannot now withdraw support from it at the cost of its life because they now find it difficult to go on providing for it. But if they have taken all reasonable precautions having a child against having a child, they do not simply by virtue of their biological relationship to the child who comes into existence, have a special responsibility for it. They may wish to assume responsibility for it, or they may not wish to. And I am suggesting that if assuming responsibility for it would require large sacrifices, then they may refuse. There it is in a nutshell, what Frank Beckwith is talking about, what Dr. Francis Beckwith of Baylor University is talking about. That is not how most people understand human relationships. That's not how most of us understand what it means to have a parental relationship. Most of us understand that we have responsibilities and duties to our children and they have rights claims on us that other human beings don't. Most of us see that and understand that. I have told audiences this around the country and around the world when we have conversations. I've told them, okay, one, oftentimes one of my kids will be with me, but they were younger. Now they're older, so they can get around by themselves. Um, but when my younger daughter was, let's say I had brought my younger daughter when she was young and she was nine or 10 years old and she was sitting in the audience and she was watching me and I just left and went home. Right? Somebody called me up and they said, Jay, your daughter's here. I said, what? So? You just left her. Yeah, well, she can get home. She's fine. I left all sorts of people. There was a room full of people. I left every one of them. Why are you bothering me about this one? That will not be an excuse. Every person on earth understands that I have a moral duty and responsibility to that child that I don't have to others. Even Judith Jarvis Thompson does. She just claims that it doesn't start until I decide to accept it. And that's not the view of, un, un, of human beings that we understand. I have a natural obligation and duty to my offspring. I owe them something because they wouldn't exist had I not participated in an act that brought them into this world. And where they have need, I have a responsibility to fill that need. And when they need help, I have a responsibility to offer that help in so far as I can in helping them to pursue their own flourishing. So there, there are some analogies. And I think that it's important to see, as much as I love Thompson's article, when you understand it, at least through that one objection, that for, and Francis Beckwith has others, and Christopher Kayser has others, and even... Kate Greasley has others, and we've talked about those somewhere else on this show, but I wanted to highlight that one because I think what Beckwith gives us is a clear lens to see what she's doing as she works her way through these different analogies. She's making a case not 
just that killing another human being can be an action that doesn't bring any natural injustice to it. But that in order to embrace that view, we have to embrace a view of human relationships that most people would reject. And that most of society, including our justice system, our legal justice system, rejects. And that most of us see that parents, whether they want to or not, have a duty and responsibility to their children and are required to do something to make their life better, even if that doing something means just foregoing your own parental rights and placing them into an adoptive family that will love them in the way that you cannot. So those are the analogies today. That is the episode for today. I've got, um, we've got stuff coming that I'm really excited about. We're going to do a whole show soon where we look at catching up with the law. When, when uh, Roe v. Wade fell, what we and Dobbs versus Jackson became the law of the land. Ever since then, it, it's a 50-state issue. It was a national issue. Now it's a 50-state issue. So we're going to have a whole show where we talk about where we are on that. Uh, and, and we're going to look at the 50 states and what's going on and where we stand and how the law has changed and what's happening. That's going to be a whole show coming up soon. And I'm chasing down other guests to talk about other books that they've written on different ideas. Uh, and hopefully we'll have some, some, some exciting people to talk to about all of that. If you've enjoyed this content, please visit merely human ministries.org merely human ministries.org. And there we have other videos, other episodes, articles that I've written for organizations like Christian research journal, other podcasts, all of these things available on our website. Uh, and you feel free if you wish to donate to the cause to continue making more of this, please do so. Also, another thing I'm excited about, in addition to that, is that uh, in addition to the legal show, uh, we're going to be filming some very short videos uh, where we're going to actually film them for the purpose of being short, just quick responses to things. Uh, they'll be coming soon as well. So thank you again for listening. This is the mere, this is the human things podcast from merely human ministries. I am Jay Watts. Uh, and we, we love our audience. Thank you. And thank you, by the way, as I say goodbye to everybody who has called me or contacted me to tell me that you're enjoying an episode. The audience is small, but you're incredibly gracious people. And I love it. And we appreciate you and we'll hear you. See you next time.